Alison Mahmood is from the Czech Republic and is now studying at university in Wales. He is on a mission to teach you how to trade and learn financial markets for free through his company FAIR. This episode we speak about how he became an entrepreneur at the young age of 13, the struggles of scaling a business, the value of sharing your business ideas, how to find a mentor and much more. So when I was 13, it was super basic. Uh, I basically, there's a, I went to Paris and I bought, I got like a thousand bucks from my parents that I borrowed. And I went to Paris and bought a bunch of clothes that I then imported to Czech Republic and sold. So that was kind of the first thing I did there. Uh, I did that, I think twice. And then I was like, all right, so I understand a bit of sales. Let's do something a bit more fun. So afterwards, I, instead of importing from France, because that's EU, I was like, all right, let's take a challenge of importing from China. So I, I happened to actually catch the, you know, the fidget spinner craze. I catched it right, right, right at the start, which worked out really well for me. So I ordered like a crate, like a bunch of fidget spinners from China and then uh, sold those, you know, sold those on to shops, which got, you know, went very well for me. And I had small things like this until I was about 17, where I was in, uh, I'm not sure, somewhere in Switzerland, I'm spacing which city CERN is in, but somewhere there, uh, right? And with a, business, with a friend of mine, and we were talking about finance and stuff like that. And we got an idea for a derivative, which we then ended up working on. And we ended up pitching that to a bank. Now we didn't end up going through with it because they explained to us that there was a way they could do it with institutional derivatives to basically get the same result. Uh, but that's what I did then. Then afterwards, I was kind of looking for the next thing to do. I did some small things on the side. And then uh, around May of 2020, uh, I was talking to an acquaintance of mine about, okay, let's do something this COVID, we're all locked in anyway, so let's figure something out. And we started work, you know, we were like, all right, let's do, let's build a hedge fund. And we were kind of working on that. And alongside that, we were like, oh, you know, I really want to kind of have, bring education out and get more people into the market generally. So we started playing around with some education and stuff around that. And then eventually around January of 2021, uh, a third acquaintance of mine kind of was talking to us about it. And she was like, well, why don't you just, you know, not, don't do the hedge fund, do the education instead of do a brokerage. So you actually target the people that you're trying to help. Right. And that's what kind of that spent into what uh, my company now is, which is FAIR. Okay. So, so the company's called FAIR and, yeah. you know, it's there in the name. It's, it's about making an equal playing ground for retail investors and, uh, you know, that kind of, focus that you've got is on ESG, which is environmental, social and, and governance factors. That's is that right. right? Yeah. So what, you know, what would a first time customer of FAIR do? How do they, you know, how do they interact with FAIR? What, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're just, you know, in our in complete early stages, just building right. out our MVP. Yeah. So there's not that much of a product, but right. Uh, but basically let's, you know, look at once we're done with all this and uh, we're finished with kind of everything. Let's assume that. Well, essentially, there's two parts to it. There's the education side and then there's the brokerage side. Right. So if someone's completely new to investing or trading and they they have some interest into it, uh, they can go to the educational platform and use that as a tool to help them learn a little bit, you know, what stocks are, what are markets, how do all these things work, and you know, learn some basics until they're comfortable uh, putting a bit of money in the market. Right. At that point, they can go to the brokerage side uh, where they can uh, pursue and you know start trading and do all that. Right. Now, the ESG side that comes in more on you know on the brokerage side. So, say uh, you know let, let's say somebody comes into you know investing and I want to do investing, 
but I'm concerned about the impact because a lot of times you see, you know, if, if you're, you're investing into companies, you're giving money to companies which really have a problematic past or like, you know, don't know, have a great impact on the world. So that's a common concern, like the, the impact that actual investing has. Yeah. And ESG, that's, that's basically a way to measure uh, the impact that businesses have. So you look at the environmental impact, the impact they have on, you know, the society, uh, the impact on, you know, the governance side, which is how they treat their employees, things like that. And they can pick out basically their values of what matters to them. So let's say somebody is, you know, heavily against firearms and any, any businesses that deal with that. So they can select it as kind of a limit. They don't want to deal with that. Somebody else might be okay with firearms. Uh, but for example, uh, environmental impact is the most important thing to them. So then those factors can, you know, kind of present to them, well, these businesses are kind of measure up this way uh, to what matters to you. And then they can use that as a consideration in their trading, which is the whole kind of point of ESG which already exists quite a bit on the institutional side, right. but is very much not used uh, by many retail investors. Okay, so I guess it's one of those things where now a lot more people are interested in investing, especially over the course of the pandemic. People got mm -hmm. stimulus checks and, and whatever else kind of money they got, and they're looking to, to make extra money with that, well, that kind of investment or that kind of money they have mm -hmm. now. So for you, you're kind of focused on giving people the education to understand how to start investing, why they should invest or where they should invest, as well as trying to speak to their core values. Where, you know, for you, where did this idea exactly come from? You said you're speaking to one colleague, then you're speaking to another colleague, but like, what was the moment where you was like, ah, I'm gonna start fair, you know what I mean? I'm gonna get mm -hmm. this thing going. So that was, that was a conversation between the three of us where we were explaining uh, the business to her. Yeah. And basically she mentioned, well, why don't you do a brokerage? And then we continued talking about it for a while and we realized, yeah, that makes sense because by being a brokerage, it's in our best interest that people actually, you know, uh, do well, well and continue yeah. to trade because that's how you can retain clients. And as such, you know, because if let's say we pursued the hedge fund side there, we're doing it because it's something we want to see happen, yeah. but there's no financial incentive in it for us. Because one thing that's very important to me is that financial education should be free. Yeah. Any kind of, you know, charging anything for it heavily restricts people accessing it. So when when I kind of, when she brought it up, that why don't you do a brokerage where it's in our best financial interest to educate people well, that is a position where, you know, even, even if we bring on investors and outside money and all this, we can justify and be like, the education has to be free because that drives revenue to the brokerage. So it really just made sense. You believe financial education should be free and obviously that kind of business mind is where you're thinking of this feeds that and, and that feeds this. So what made you want to study physics more so than just run the business or run a business? Well, because I have a, like a large range of interests. So, but I can kind of break them out to kind of four core things. So firstly, there's physics, which I, you know, I've loved physics since I was a little kid. It's always something around it. So that was kind of an always an interest of mine. But then I'm interested in uh, kind of programming or computer science. You could say uh, I, you know, played around a lot with tech when I was young. Uh, my parents' business was one of the first to have proper computer networks and all that in the country. So I always got to mess around with a lot of tech. And then uh, my interests then are kind of finance uh, on that, you know, on like trading and uh, derivatives markets and all this. And then lastly, it's running a business. Right. And when I was looking at, okay, what am I going to do? Well, I looked at physics and the most common path that people go 
from taking doing a physics degree is either physics, finance, the software development. And then I can always start a business of my own. Right. And as such, that kind of makes the most sense to me that it will that, that keeps all the paths open and I still love physics, so I can yeah. pursue it. Okay. So it's it's kind of like you're just you're following your passion, but at the same time you're like let me just do this, you know, for now while I'm still young, keep this going. Do you know what I mean? And I can do both at the same time. So what is your like day-to-day schedule like? Because I guess with COVID, there's no in-person lectures, but you must just spend so many hours on Zoom. Like, and you're, you're, you're probably like, okay, I've got investors at this time. Then I've got a lecture at that time and, and this, that and whatever. How do you juggle it all? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, so basically, I usually start my day you know, quite early like, you know, 4 a.m. at some point, maybe sometimes later, depending on when I went to sleep. And at that point, I'm like, all right, I have coursework to do because a lot of the company, uh, because they're based in the U, they're usually still kind of still out, not really working on stuff uh, for the company. And as such, I can work on my coursework, any stuff I have for the university. Uh, Then usually between 10 a.m. and then about 2 p.m., I have lectures and things like that. Uh, So I go to those. And during the breaks between those, I can deal with uh, kind of small things like, oh, dev team needs help with this, or I need to talk to legal team because of this and that. Uh, so I manage, you know, during those gas between lectures, I deal with things like that. And then from 2 p.m. Uh, till around 6 p.m., usually all the kind of official company stuff that I need to be like investors and all that I have scheduled in there because those are still technically business hours. Then in the evenings, I have a bunch of meetings with people in the company because we have a decent amount of kind of students that work at the company. And as such, that's the best time for them. And then during the last few hours of the day, you know, whatever I need to kind of finish off, I finish off. And then usually the weekends are kind of an, an overflow time where I can slot in anything else. Okay. So like for, for such a young person, because when I was your age, I was nowhere near as organized as you are. How do you think you got to this level of organization? Was it more necessity? Have you always been kind of like, right, step one, step two, step three, make sure all these steps are in order type thing. Like, How did you become like this? I think it's because I had no choice. Uh, I'm very much the kind of person who, you know, if, if you if I have nothing to do, I will be the most spontaneous person going around doing this and this and that and that, which you can kind of see in the way I, you know, what I do. I'm studying physics, then I have a business in finance, then I'm teaching, uh, you know, finance to some as a tutor, then I do this and that. Like I always do a million things to keep myself busy. And because I kind of end up in a position where I have so many things to do, I reached a point where I had no choice but to, I have, you know, I have to be organized. At this point, I completely rely on my calendar. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, like I said, just before this, we started this, I was listening to a show about Notion and uh, you were saying that it would be ideal if you could get your um, screen time in there, all your calendar stuff in there. And then when you put something in the calendar, you can have a doc to write your notes. I'm thinking, yeah, man, this is sounding amazing. But I'm like, how do you set this up? And then you're like, oh, I'm going to go in and code the API. And this, I was like, oh, oh whoa, whoa. I was thinking, Alison, Alison. <laughs> Some of us here are just dumb, dumb brain, click, want to push one button type people. But so you said your parents owned a business and they had the first computer networks in uh, in Czech Republic. So yeah. does that mean you kind of grew up learning how to code or just around the accessibility of being able to code? So the reason why my parents were one of the first few that had uh, kind of computer networks and all that was because back when my father was at the university, he, you know, into Communist Czech Republic, he imported computers for the university because they needed some. Uh, so he was he was kind of in that part of it. So he had access to it. So he, they installed it because he was like, oh, yeah, it's technology. We want to have that in our business. But their business has very little to do with technology. So I think, you know, like 
for example, I learned basic when I was very young uh, and just to learn a bit of coding, but it's more of a, it's just something that's kind of always been around me, uh, but I mainly like actually properly got into it when I was like 11 or 12, when I was playing a lot of video games and I was like, all right, let's learn a bit more to code, which is when I kind of more seriously dug into coding beyond just the recreational thing I do to solve problems. Okay. So like, what was your first project? You said it was because of gaming. Did you mod something? Did you like put like... Oh, no, no. I was like, with the games, I was like, oh, this is, like, you could do all this. This is kind of cool, which is why I decided to learn it. And then my first project was, uh, what was it? Uh, well, there was, there was a bunch of things I did. I think I did a bunch of home automation stuff as I was trying to get organized. So I had a bunch of stuff with like Raspberry Pi's Arduinos and all that. But I think the first thing I did was basically, because, uh, you know, I, at the time I was still using a calendar a decent amount, but it wasn't that much. Yeah. Uh, but there were some things in my calendar that I wanted to be more automated. Like, you know, if I need to be, have a meeting that I can just, click a button, it shows me all the times during some dates where I'm actually free. Yeah. So I built a little app that would look through my calendar and find me empty time slots. Oh, nice. So you had this this thing built whatever many years ago. Do you look at things like Calendly and all the other things out right now thinking, ah, oh, if only I'd have released this to the public, then <laughs> do you know what I mean? I could have been a billionaire already. Right. I think like the part of that is like, yeah, I suppose if I released it, uh, it, you know, it could have made me some money, uh, but I always looked at it as like, the actual product is a very small part of a business. Yeah. And at the time, I really didn't have sufficient capabilities about how to run a business yeah. to take it to scale. Yeah. I yeah. think even at this point, as I'm running fair, I'm like, all right, you know, I, I've, I've done this for so long that I feel like I know how to scale, but there's still a lot of limitations, which is while, you know, why, while I think, you know, fair has the potential to do simply well, sometimes there are moments where I'm like, I'm actually going to be able to handle scaling this to a very large company because I have some experience, but I very much don't have experience kind of really scaling a business. And back yeah. then I had very little experience even properly running a business. So it never would have kind of made sense for me to uh, try that. Okay. Okay. I mean, one thing is about scaling a business, you know, hopefully you don't go overnight from five employees to 500, but there's also that part of, from what I've noticed where I, you know, I just, I employ a lot of free, freelancers. So I don't have any, if many full-time staff. If someone's better at doing something, you just got to let them do it type thing. You know, it's like, personally, I'm not a good um, kind of, not manager. I'm a good person to talk to about things, but I'm not the person to be like, right, we need to send this, do this and do this and do that. If I have to manage like six, seven people doing that, then it's, it's all going to implode on itself. But, mm -hmm. I feel like as you learn along the way, it's one of those things where you kind of go, oh, okay, well, he's good at this. She's good at that. I can trust them to do this. Okay, I have to pay attention to this person over here. But I think one of the benefits for you is right now, you're in a really kind of fast moving space where you can kind of see what's working and what's not working and, mm -hmm. and move forward from there. Yeah, like I think nowadays, it, like it is kind of much more viable to uh, be quite new to this and, uh, tr try to figure things out. But back then when I was, you know, 12, 13, and I was making stuff like this, I very much looked at it as, you know, something I'm doing for fun that's useful. And even when I was kind of like, should I do this as a business? I was like, well, let, let, let's leave this for later. I don't have the current skills. Now, if I, you know, could I have pursued it as a business? Sure. Like, you know, I could have talked to my parents who have experience and done something with it. But it was always more of kind of a passion project to make something that's useful to me. And, 
I, you know, I'm going to make businesses down the line anyway. Like that's how, that's how I've always really looked at businesses as, you know, until you have outside investment and a lot of employees that rely on you, it's just something you, you, you know, you always have to look at, well, statistics say this is going to die. So you have to be, you know, expect that there's going to be another one and another one and another one. And as such, I was like, yeah, it's fine. You know, if this doesn't become business, I'll figure out something else. You know, you, I'm sure you know, everyone gets a hundred ideas for some business every day. So you'd be surprised. Apparently, a lot of people don't have ideas in their head. They're just kind of like always processing input data. So they're seeing this, they're looking at this, they're doing that. And one thing I've noticed from everybody I've spoken to for the interviews of this podcast is all of us that want to do this type of thing or want to work for themselves are thinkers. We're always thinking and we look at things and we go, oh, how could this be better? How could that be better? Why is this like this and why is that like that? But apparently when I speak to, you know, just my regular day-to-day friends and other people I meet in life, they don't have ideas. And I'm always like, how do you not have ideas? You know, what, what goes on in your head? <laughs> apparently it's just a lot of thoughts about themselves and just that's it, which is odd, but also very interesting to think. So where you have all these ideas, are you kind of like, look, I'll just keep a note of these in my Notion doc and I'm going to focus on fair? Or do you have like other things that you're like, oh, once fair is at X amount of users or or Y amount of revenue, I'm going to funnel off and, and look into this thing? Well, it, it depends on the ideas. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm very much of the view that since I will have, you know, since I'll have more ideas, if I, if I talk to someone who I'm like, oh, they're, for them, this, this idea might be a great fit. I like to mention it to them just because I think it might be useful. Like just not that while ago, I was talking to someone who uh, kind of, for who it made sense to start a business and they were in the position where, uh, you know, it was a good fit. So I talked to them about an idea and I was like, kind of talked them through it to try to help them. So a lot of the ideas that I think are good and that could actually become something, I just tell people, because I think it can be useful for them in their position. Uh, but there are, you know, there are occasionally an idea where I don't find someone that I tell about it where, uh, because, you know, because there just isn't anyone I know where potentially I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll pursue this after. But I think if, you know, if I fo- constantly focus on an escape route uh, from FAIR, like actively focus on it, I might just overlook some potential that FAIR has. So instead I'm more kind of focused on FAIR, and then once that implodes or if anything happens to it, I always can go to something else. See, I feel like a lot of people try to try to hoard their ideas. They think, oh, the idea is so valuable. The idea is valuable. And I've, I've always kind of noticed that it's more the implementation of the idea that's the most valuable part. And if anything, I might have a great idea, but I might not be the person to implement it. And if I can give someone else who doesn't have those thoughts or ideas something they can implement, that's the value there. It's not always a monetary value. It's it's sometimes just sharing that idea or sharing those, you know, having that conversation with somebody. Yeah, I think there's kind of two parts to this. I think firstly, if it is a good idea and someone else implements it, then it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to create a better world. So why not just look at it from a purely like, well, the positive impact it can bring. But also, uh, you know, if you are kind of trying to hoard your ideas, you're never going to get to all of them anyway. So just if, if you really have to hoard them, pick the one that's the best and just give away the rest. And then once you find a better one, give away that one. Because like whenever I, t- when I talk to people and I just openly talk to them about, hey, this is my idea. This is what I'm working on. They're like, why are you you know talking about this? I'm like, well, because what's going to happen? If someone starts a business that competes with me, then if they implement it better than me, then they deserve to have the successful business. I don't deserve to have it. And I have to do something else. 
because like I don't know one thing I've always is like I'm very much kind of a the competition of the market and if they're better at it than me then they're going to have a bigger impact than me so it's better that they do it instead of me yeah and there's also the fact of if if there's competition you can learn from their mistakes or you can see what what yeah. they've got working for them and do that too I always try to tell people people want to be the you know they want blue ocean strategy they want to go somewhere and be the first person there it's like there's coca-cola there's pepsi there's tesco own brand there's so many different types of cola coca-cola all types of brands they're all making money they're all doing okay and it's yeah. it's not always about being the first person somewhere sometimes it's just about being the best person or a competitively, sorry, competitively good enough person. Absolutely. Like the example I like to use is Apple, right? Whenever we look at Apple, so many people are like, oh, they didn't do this first. Let's say capacitive touch means they weren't first. Folders or whatever. Oh, vid widgets. That's a big one. Yeah. They weren't first. Well, it doesn't matter. Clearly, you know, the market, prefer, you know, a lot of people like their solutions and that's why they're successful. So that's, I think that's kind of the most prevalent and com you know easily seen example of you don't have to be first to win yeah i think the thing is with apple as well they're all about user experience like one of my friends recently just went from android to ios and he's like the user experience is insane like it's so much better it's so much cleaner and i'm like that's why i have apple everything they're like no you're a fanboy <laughs> it's like it's literally just i can copy something on my iphone paste it on my mac i can exactly. look at something on my ipad go straight to the Mac or go straight to the, it's, it's just an ecosystem. And Android currently doesn't have that crosstalk without third party applications. It's very hard mm -hmm. to like jerry rig together is what I've personally found. Yeah. I literally did an episode on my podcast about this on Sunday where I talked about, like we, we talked about some examples of Apple and we were like, all right, well actually it turns out all this boils out to being focused on user experience. So I, I think I completely agree with you on this. Yeah. So Alison, you, yeah, sorry to skip back into the story like further back than we've already progressed. It's all right, it's all right. <laughs> you won a startup competition. What what happened there and what was that about? How did you get into it? What was the prize? All that kind of stuff. Oh, that was actually very fun. Uh, so, you know, we knew that if we wanted some recognition for the business and also we really wanted to kind of test the idea yeah. because whenever, you know, from my experience, I find a lot of people you talk to about a business or anything, they might push back a little bit but they really don't give you that much criticism. So my yeah. thinking was, well, if I go to a competition, yeah. that's the number one place to get criticism. Exactly. So we were like, all right, let's do this. So we applied for it. We got in. It was actually a fluke that we got in. Uh, one of the co-founders got a phone call from them like two days before the competition actually round was starting. So we were completely unprepared. We went in on <laughs> Deckless <Friday>. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We went, we went in on Friday being like, okay, I don't even know the format of this competition. Let's hear it. So they explained it at the start. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, okay, we are going to have a lot of work to do. Yeah. So then we didn't sleep Friday to Saturday, didn't sleep. Saturday to Sunday, didn't sleep. Just working, working, working. But one thing that we were very fortunate with is because, you know, while we were, you know, still very young, we were a bigger business than anyone else there oh, wow. uh, because I think at the time we had like 25 people. Yeah. So what we did is we were like kind of on our company Slack, we sent a message, Hey, we're taking part in a competition. We need help. Any of you, any of you have any time to hop on and, you know, help us with preparing the material and yeah. a bunch of people, you know, hop, we were like, yeah, okay. They hopped on zoom calls with us. And they were working with us. I, I just want to say thank you very much to them because it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Both the work they did and the fact they even 
uh, kind of hopped on in the, like little 10 minutes after we were like, we dropped, you know, we met, sent the message, a bunch of people hopped on and they helped us build financial models, uh, design for patient X, uh, you know, valuations, all that was made overnight. And then Saturday to Sunday, I spent the night building a prototype of the app because we were like, well, we need, you know, we need to be able to show something. They spent Saturday to Sunday night just building a prototype and, uh, you know, trying to figure that out. And then on Sunday, uh, there was the pitch and like three hours before uh, the actual, you know, uh, prop presentation, we finally finished off the pitch deck. And it yeah. was our first time properly practicing the pitch. Yeah. It's just like, oh, God. <laughs> well, I feel like if you know the, the material of your pitch, it's not always about knowing, like, I have to say these exact words. It's like, right, the, the bullet points are going to come up and I can just waffle on about these as long as, do you know what I mean, like, meet the time. Yeah, that that's the thing. The time for it was very tight. Oh, and whenever I'm you know whenever I'm presenting, yeah, I'm always just waffle on and on and on. Yeah, I'm very much like I used to just like get a presentation, and if it's three slides, I can still talk for an hour about it. Yeah, as you can probably tell with how I'm walking, talking on. on no, and on no, that's good for for podcasts. That's great, but I guess for business meetings and business presentations, they're like, <laughs> get to the point, man. Give me the numbers. Give me the stats. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> So we very we very much were kind of like all right we need to compress this because when we were the first time we practiced it yeah. we were at twenty five minutes and we were aiming for ten right so we kind of kept nearing that cutting parts getting it more efficient yeah and then last 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 time we practiced it we were at ten minutes thirty right. and they told us that it was going to be a hard cutoff so then we did the actual presentation and I was like oh god okay I was so stressed trying to go through it you know pre presenting it going through it watching the timer because I had the PowerPoint timer on my screen. Oh. I was like, okay, okay, six minutes, 27, six minutes, 28, going through it. And then we finished it at like 9.59. Oh my was, gosh. <laughs> yeah, and it was great. And then afterwards we were like, okay, you know, we finished this. I'm glad we were done. Uh, our mentor uh, messaged us because he was uh, there watching it. They're like, oh, you guys were great. They were like, okay, thank you so much. And then we found out we won, which was very exciting. Because, you know, we put in so much work, but I, I, I feel like compared to a lot of the people, we didn't put in that much work and it, it kind of felt a little undeserved. But I think because of the size, you know, because of the size of our team, we were able to really get through it in that short amount of time. Well, you, so you were saying you were, the, you were the best quality people in the room, but that's also because you had a, a wealth of resources of people. Like I'm sure most yeah. people coming to that competition would have been, you know, one or two or maybe even, you know, three people. Yeah, so like it. majority, yeah, majority of the groups there were about four yeah. Oh, yeah working on an idea and maybe they didn't even have as much of you know a backlog of of numbers and statistics and research to kind of back themselves up on so it's it, it's amazing that you've won and you know you shouldn't discredit yourself for the fact that you were able to pull together such an amazing piece of work in such a short period of time it speaks to all the work you did before you even got accepted into the competition do you know what i mean i suppose yeah uh, i suppose to kind of to an extent that would uh, be Part of it. I don't know. It still feels to. I don't. Yeah. What was the Go prize? <laughs> what was the prize for the competition? Uh, so the prize was because it was just a small uh, competition. So the prize was like five hundred pounds. Right. And then uh, just uh, the fact that we had our pitch sent to a bunch of investors and things like that. Oh, okay. And so from off the back of that, have you had any kind of interest or investors or just have you built like good long term relationships with anybody? Like, what was the yeah, so actually, one of the people uh, we met there uh, has ended up being uh, ended up joining the board of advisors for our company. So that was really great. And then there's a bunch of contacts that we've spoken to who were uh, quite interesting. But I think the what it really helped with the most is that on Friday evening and Saturday evening uh, there was like a two-hour session where 
they, they kind of rotated around different investors you got to meet with. So I, we got to practice our pitch like 40 or 50 times, which made me much more comfortable doing the pitch than afterwards to all the different investors we've met down the line after. I think that was kind of the most helpful thing about it is just drilling that pitch. Right. Okay. So I guess now where you're just, you even probably pitching today, just, you know, so now you have that muscle kind of fine tuned and refined. What, what kind of input did you get from your mentor and like, how did you find them to get to the stage right now? Cause if they were there in the audience, that means they have quite a vested interest in you. You know, where did you find this person and, and how all that kind of stuff, because I'm sure some of the listeners would love to know how you went about finding this person. Kind of, you know, a, a lot of the people that we end up, getting kind of as advisors or mentors, it kind of happens by accident. So let's say, uh, for example, I was looking, you know, one of the people is I was looking for someone who has experience with marketing because we were trying to figure out a marketing. So I reached out uh, to a man, you know, an advisor I have uh, that has a lot of experience with HR. And she told me, yeah, you know, I know someone in marketing, I'll pass them your contact. And then I ended up talking to that person. And uh, you know, that, that sparked it. Now, for the mentor that was there, uh, that was kind of part of the competition structure where every team got assigned a mentor. And then the, I think the mentor just really kind of enjoyed working with us. And that's why he continued uh, to be an advisor for us after the competition ended. So, it, you know, it can happen in many ways. Uh, and you reach out to someone for advice and then it ends, that, ends up that way. Uh, once, actually, uh, one of the advisors that we have uh, for kind of the brand building side of it was someone who originally reached out to us as an investor. And then we got talking and we were like, well, actually, you know, it doesn't make sense for you to invest because of the scale of investment we're looking for. But we got talking about kind of, well, he has a lot of experience in brand building. That's exactly what we're looking for. So that came along that way. So it's, it's really just a range of opportunities. Just as long as you talk to people, someone always pops up and people are very happy to give advice and all that if they have experience. Yeah. So you're kind of of the mindset of just, just talk to people and see how it goes. Because I feel like a lot of people, when they go out, uh, oh, I'm networking, I'm networking. It's like, are you networking? Or are you just handing out a business card? Are you just telling people about, you know, stuff they don't really care about? It's like, I've I've been to networking events. I'm like, this was useless. I've got a handful of business cards. I don't use business cards personally. I feel like it's a dead medium. If I can't give you a phrase or a website that you can remember in that moment, what's the point in handing you this piece of paper that you're going to throw in the bin? I really like business cards, but they have to be like weird, like not like the common paper business card. Yeah. So when I was younger, I had this cool business card made, which was uh, kind of made of metal and it was cut out. Yeah, yeah. So like laser cut parts. And those kind of business cards, like, and it was credit card shit. That's actually one thing. Business cards, if you if they're not made of paper, make them business, you know, credit card shape because that can people can actually put that in their wallet. Yeah, it's so, like, I don't get business card sizes why they're the way they are. Anyway, like if, if it's a business card that's kind of cool and someone would be like, oh, that's a cool business card. Yeah, I think that can have a bit of an effect. And uh, things like, for example, I like to use just a QR code. People can scan so they have my contact. Yeah. So just having that on the back of the business card that's useful. But you're you're right that you know generally. If if you just tell people your name, they can Google you and they'll find out about you anyway. Yeah. So that's usually, I think, like the simplest way is as long as you, you, they, you can tell them your name or the name of the business, they can Google you. Yeah. That's usually enough. The business card is kind of a cool reminder if it's someone you think, you know, I, I told them and I think they're very close to being sold, but they're not just over that hump yet completely. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen a lot of 
over the course of the last four or five years, I've seen so many different styles of business card. One thing I've seen, the first person I've seen had this um, this little circle on the back of their phone. He's like, you tap your phone on my phone, tapped it together, mm-hmm. opened up his Instagram, it opened up a, a web page as well. I was like, oh, that's cool. And he was one of the first few people I saw with that. Then there was another guy who had a QR code that was, you know, once again, his like phone screensaver. So he's like, yeah, man, scan this. And I feel like the more creative you get with it, the better it is. Like I met a design mm-hmm. guy and his his um, card was made out of like really premium paper with gold foil and this. And it was like, I, your card is telling me I can vouch for you as a designer. You've designed this card. It's amazing. I'm going to work with you. And I, you know, I work with him to this day. But I feel like there is a kind of, there's a trend of people, oh, follow my Instagram, do this, you know, get me hit and da, 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 da. It's like, but what is the valuable thing for me going there and following you? Do you see what I mean? And it, yeah. it, it, at the end of the day, the piece of paper is always trying to get you into a digital realm. It's not like in, back in the day where you'd have your Rolodex full of business cards and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to call Steve today. I'm going to call Paul. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. it's all about getting to a digital medium. So, I mean, do you personally have a business card now for fair or do you not bother with those? I actually don't have a business card right now because the entire time FAIR has existed in its current form, yeah. it has been digital. Okay. So I've, I have not had a single, actually I've had one, no, I've had three in-person meetings from the start of FAIR that have been you know in person. So I've never uh, had the time to get a business card because it wasn't very useful uh, you know, for that because whenever you're just online, you just sent them a link or something. Yeah, okay. But you are you are a believer in the business card, like you said. You want it to be a little bit different. You had your little metal business card before. Yeah, I, I, I like I like I like business cards for their convenience. Yeah. Because uh, let's say you know you're you're having an interesting conversation. You know, like, hey, I got to run, and you don't have the time to like give them your phone number or something. It's useful to have, but I'm very much I very much don't like the hand your business card to everyone. It should be in very specific cases where you know you want to continue the conversation, but something interrupted you in that moment. And business cards can still be useful. And by making it stand out, it's more likely people won't throw it out. Because especially like you mentioned with the networking events, you people have a stack of business cards. Right. Your business card stands out by being in you know, a different shape, uh, doing you know, something that makes it actually stand out from the stack of almost same design, all paper business cards. Yeah. Then, you know, it, it makes sense and people will kind of keep it in a separate stack or put it somewhere else so they notice it. But just giving your business card to everyone and having a very generic business card, I really don't see the value in that anymore. And also, if someone doesn't have a business card, as long as they can tell me their name and I can spell it correctly, then it's fine. Yeah. I feel like that's something I heard. I can't remember who I heard say it, but they were like, have less business cards and have a memorable URL. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you can say the word Spotify to somebody and they can go, okay, I can remember that. They can Google it. Or if you have like 50 business cards, but you're in an event with a thousand people, you're going to value giving out those business cards more than if you had a 200 business cards in your back pocket. We're like, oh yeah, take one, take one, take one, take one, take one. You're going to be vetting people at a different level. And it, I think the thing is with networking, yes, there's value in knowing lots of people, but there's also the, the there's the, um oh, what's it called? The Dunbar effect, where you only can interact with so many people because there's only so many hours in a day. And unless uh-huh. you're giving like mega conferences every day to all your network, you can only interact with so many people in a day. So it's all about finding the valuable people to yourself and all that kind of thing. But with you, I feel like, quite lucky to have caught you so early on in your journey you're like destined to be Jeremy <laughs> you know I to be one of those top top tier people you're just one of the one of the great thinkers of our generation 
What? Yeah, either I'll do very well or I'll crash and fail completely. That's how I always looked at it. Well, I was going to say, what we what we only ever hear is the success stories of the 1% of people, right? And it's definitely something where it's like there's always more failures than there are successes. But say if you were to make, you know, for yourself, £60,000 a year running fair or, you know, maybe more, that's a success. Right. You've made that for yourself. And it's like, people seem to think that if you work for yourself and you have to work all these long hours for such a little bit, little amount of money, why would you do it? It's like, because for some people working- Exactly. I'd say for some people working for somebody else is like really not enjoyable, but working for themselves, it's like, I'm in control of this. If I wanted to, I could take two days off and not have to tell anybody like, yeah, it's going to hurt me further down the line, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm working yeah. for. Yeah, I think um, like with that, uh, when you know, whenever I'm doing a business and it's not like that in between period, I really don't feel like I can take off two days because it would be yeah. too long. Yeah. But yeah, like I, it, it, there is a certain comfort of you know, I, I control my calendar. Yeah. I actually had a conversation very recently uh, with a friend of mine about this, and she told me that the thing you will hate the most about having a job is that you don't control your calendar. Exactly. And to an extent, I was like, yeah, right, because what if I, you know, what if at two p.m. Uh, you know, on a Tuesday, I want to go see a talk or, uh, you know, have a meeting with a friend because they happen to be in town. Yeah, that is something I can do with my own business. And if I'm working for someone, I'm not going to have that option. Yeah. Now, for me, when I kind of look at, you know, working a job or a company, I really enjoy just the challenge of problem solving. Yeah. So whether I do that in a, you know, as an employee or running my own business, I think at the start, I wouldn't mind it as much, which, which, whichever way I go. Yeah. But because I have such a foundation around running businesses, I think long term, I'll end up with running a business anyway. But I'm actually, you know, uh, in August, I'm just waiting for confirmation of the offer. But I might be starting, uh, you know, working for Deloitte for a year to do consulting to see how that goes. Yeah. Because I always, I always want to try it. That's yeah. the thing. Like, I'm always interested in seeing how it goes. Maybe it will work better for me. Maybe... I enjoy running businesses, but I'll enjoy working for someone more. So I, one thing that I do always kind of think is always try it. Because if you try it for a few months, it's not going to do anything to you and you have the opportunity. Well, there's also the opportunity for what people don't hear about a lot, which is entrepreneurship. So you're working at Deloitte, you could meet somebody who, you know, you get talking to and they like FAIR. Next thing you know, FAIR is now bought by Deloitte. Your whole team's employed by Deloitte. Do you know what I mean? All these things can happen from working yeah. in, a, in a company. And someone like yourself, you're intelligent, you can talk to people. That's very rare. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It doesn't seem rare, but trust me, it's very, very rare. And there's no shame in, in working for other people, especially in the type of work you're doing where it's financial. You need that kind of, uh, what's the word? Credentials behind you. And whether or not you employ those credentials in or you get them yourself from experience, it's, it's not a losing scenario. And I'm pretty sure the pay at Deloitte is not going to be too bad. You know, It's not going to be £10 yeah. an hour. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't. I don't think they pay that badly, from what I heard. Although, actually, this, you know, just a side note because I found this interesting because I saw it recently. The consulting firms are having a really difficult time recruiting, and they're heavily hiking their pay because they weren't paying enough. Apparently, yeah. So, you thought, Let <laughs> apparently, me just get it's getting better now. Yeah, it can only go up from here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're so you're graduating next year. I'm assuming. Uh, so I'm in my second year. Uh, okay. So that one year at Deloitte would be a placement year. Oh, okay. And I guess with that placement year, you can still kind of be building fair and doing, because you're already used to this kind of like dynamic schedule of, you know, a couple yeah. hours here, a couple hours there. Nice. Nice. So I guess 
for you. It's one of those things where it's like, you have so much going for you right now at the ripe old age of, you're 21, right? I heard, your, your pod, yeah. okay, your birthday's coming up soon or something, your, your podcast. Uh, no, it was on 5th of May. 5th so of was... May, happy belated. I would send you a gift, Thank but you. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> at the ripe old age of 21, you've got so much going for you. And I don't know what other shows you listen to or what other content you consume, but the, the main thing going right now, going around right now in Silicon Valley slash, you know, American tech Twitter is... The young years are about just putting in some hours somewhere. You know what I mean? Just figuring out yourself. It's all about taking score at 30. And I was just wondering, mm -hmm. do you have like five-year plans, 10-year plans? Or are you kind of just in like that kind of six-month to 12-month project? I think up? like I do have, like before before I turned uh, 17, 18, I very much had the kind of the plan of I need to do everything I can. So down the line, I have as many options out, you know, that I can go with as possible. Yeah. But then once I kind of got to uni and I started doing businesses, actually, everything you mentioned, I keep being like, I recently made an episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I recently was making an episode about like kind of the long-term goal in life. And I realized I actually don't really have like a proper long-term goal. Like I have things I want to see change. Like I want to see more people get into investing and take ESG to have, you know, better impact. I want to see more, you know, people in STEM and young people get yeah. into entrepreneurship, but not with, you know, receive capital, but actually do a small business that does like, you know, half a million in revenue for the, you know, per year and actually get into that. Cause there's so many people that would really be a good fit for that. We would work better for them. So there's a bunch of things I want to kind of see change, but I realized I actually don't have kind of a life goal that I'm really building towards, Yeah, which it was, it was kind of tough for me that the day I recorded that episode, when I came into it, I very much did not realize that was going to be my conclusion. Yeah. So the day after I was like, oh God, yeah, what am I actually doing with my life? I have no idea where I'm heading. <laughs> I mean, that's fine though. Cause it, 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 sometimes people always talk about, oh, you have to know what you're doing. You have to know what you're doing. And sometimes it's like, if you're already on a path, sometimes you can't see what's however many miles down the road. You can only focus yeah. on the road ahead of you and just trust that you're going to get to some kind of destination. And whether that, you know, you might have a realization in, in three, four years from now, you might go, do you know what? I really care about soil. I'm going to make sure the soil quality across the world is high, like high in nitrates. Or do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's okay, a... how much research into me did you do? Because <laughs> last week I was on a podcast yeah. about agriculture. Oh, wow. About no, I mean, to be honest, you know what it is? I feel like a lot of people like me and you have the same kinds of thought patterns and the same kind of I don't know where you do your research, but the same things come up to us in our minds and in, in the internet. And it's like, you go and go, what? Hold on, that soil's not optimized for growing happening. this. <laughs> yeah. that, wait, oh, no, you can't grow corn there? Why? Why can't you grow food in the desert? Like all these types of questions <laughs> come to mind. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's really a problem with having no direction. And it's not, it's not a bad thing to have no direction. It's, it's sometimes mm. the no direction thing is actually a discovery route to finding whatever takes your fancy. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'd agree that, that there's definitely kind of an extended bit. Okay, let's you know, explore and see what's out there. But I also kind of, because I have so many options, I always look at it, well, there's so many things I can do. I really should have a goal so I can optimize for it. Like if I didn't have many options, yeah. then kind of trying to follow that path and seeing where it takes me would be something that I was like, yeah, I can do that and see how the, what happens. Yeah. But because I, you know, whenever I look at what I could do, I have so many options of you know this way or this way or this way or this way, and like it's like how do I choose, right? And having that, you know, 
thing is I'm very much open to having a goal that I'm like, this is what I would do in my life and then changing it in three months. I'm fine with that. But having that goal kind of lets you actually pick a path towards what you want to do, which is something that has kind of been making the decisions a little bit harder. But, you know, you, you are right that, you know, eventually I'll either figure it out or I'll see what happens. I'm sure it's going to be fine. Yeah, I mean you're still in uni that's probably the best time to figure like just life out in general like i've been to uni twice first time i was like yeah i'm doing accounting and finance this is great i'm gonna work in finance I'm gonna be the numbers guy second time i was like i'm doing music i don't really do you know what i mean <laughs> i don't see myself becoming a music producer i don't do you know what i mean i don't know why i'm doing this i was just doing it to occupy my time because i like i just left a job as a stockbroker and i was like I need something to do. Do you know what I mean? I want a reason to leave the house every day or every couple of days. It's like, I'm good at music. It's always been a hobby. Let's see what we can do with this. And then over the course of the two, three years, I was like, hmm, I have skills in audio editing. I like to be creative. Podcasts. And everyone was like, we're doing a degree in music. Why do you want to do podcasts? I'm like, it's a variant of my skills that actually speaks better to yeah. me and something I feel like I can be really good at. And everyone in there was still like, no, I'm going to be the next Madonna. I'm going to be the next Michael Jackson. I'm like, you're, you're making the odds. The odds are not in your favor. I was like, in podcasting, it's like, I can go to one convention now and be like, all these hundreds of people in here, that's it. But with music, it's like, there's millions of people trying to do music. You have no way to scale who's better than who, what's going on where. And so I, I kind of say that to, to say this to you. What's like, you said you, when you went to the, to the bank and you pitched the idea of fair they were like oh we can do that ourselves duh, 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 duh. And so this wasn't fair this was a derivative when i was 17 oh was, okay yeah. oh okay yeah. okay okay well that kind of makes my question tweaked a bit what is like what is your main kind of drawbacks with fair like I, I i don't ask this in a way to like scare you but what's the kind of things you see where you go oh maybe this and that could could hold us back and how do you overcome those those kind of thoughts so i think there is there's one thing that's like really big for me and then one that's kind of probably going to be more along the lines of what you're looking for. So the first one uh, is I, I really struggle to get, cons you know, real criticism from people because so many people you talk to or even like even investors, which is what I didn't expect. I was like, if you talk to investors, they're going to give you problems, right? Because they're looking to have their money safely invested. So they're going to question things. And a lot of the investors I speak to are only like, oh yeah, it's a great idea. They might ask like a few follow-up questions, but none of it is like, this is a massive problem of your company. And it really, really, really scares me that I'm looking over some massive issue we're going to have at FAIR and it's going to completely destroy us because I didn't look enough for problems in the company. So that's kind of what like, my concern there is just not you know struggling to get enough criticism to really figure out all the problems. I know that sounds like a big luxury, but I, I would much rather have a company everyone criticizes because then I can fix the problems. Now, the second thing, like you know, probably that's more along, probably more along the lines of what you were uh, kind of looking for, is that kind of a big issue we have is well, you know, we can provide the education, but what if everyone just goes to a different brokerage? Like because we, you know, we can teach, we can do all this, and we can kind of try to get people to trade with our brokerage. But what if everyone learns and does everything and then just goes, takes it to a different brokerage? And I think there's a solution to that is, you know, maybe a buyout or, you know, do, do something there where we sell off the company and it just uh, goes, uh, you know, goes off the way 
that way. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that worried about it because it's, you know, if it happens, it happens. And I try, you know, I try to build, you know, make sure we have the strategy to make sure we works. I try to make sure, you know, when I'm working with the dev team that our the platform works so, you know, really smoothly and the user experience is great. So people do want to use our platform. But at the end of the day, you know, if that's the way it ends up happening, that everyone uses our education and then leaves us, then, well, the worst case thing is, you know, someone's going to want to buy us if, if it's so good that everyone wants to learn on it and then they're successful in other brokerage. So that's that's a path out. And, you know, if, if it gets to kind of, I guess, the worst case scenario, well, then what, what can you do? Most businesses fail and I'll do my best so that doesn't happen. And if it does, we'll fail and I'll have to figure out the next business I'm going to do or something else I'm going to do. Here's where to find Alison online. People can just Google me. So my name's A-L-L-I-S-O-N and then surname M-A-H-M-O-O-D. If you Google me, you can find my podcast, social media and all the rest of it. I keep it under my name. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.